All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America. All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Thank you for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station. It's Saturday, October 10th, so we are live for you uh, on this Saturday in the WXIR studios. For those new to Evidence of Design, our show is all about critiquing income and wealth inequality. We investigate the causes of economic inequality and examine its effects. So, hey, on today's show, on Saturday, October 10th, we have several things to cover. Mary, you're going to kick us off with some COVID-19 updates. And then we're going to go into uh, one of our features for today's show. The Federal Reserve recently released their Survey of Consumer Finances. This is a triennial survey, meaning it happens once every three years. And it is a really comprehensive look at economic indicators for our society. For instance, income distribution, wealth distribution, car ownership, home ownership, uh, you know, stock ownership, things like that. And it's all broken down by race, education, ethnicity, and economic percentiles. So we'll discuss that and more um, looking at comprehensive economic indicators in the U.S. We just left what is supposed to be the so-called longest economic expansion in modern U.S. history. That's 10 years since the Great Recession to 2019. Well, actually up until 2020, this year, until the COVID-19 pandemic. What is the result of that economic expansion for us? How is our economy doing or how did it do before COVID-19? Well, the survey reveals maybe not so great. Not so great that, you know, the mass media and most folks think that the economy did. Uh, we are still rampantly unequal in society. Indeed, the, the income and wealth continues to be concentrated among the highest earners. And we'll go into that and more throughout the hour. Later on, we're also going to get to a tribute to David Graeber. He was a professor, an author, an activist who recently passed away. And I want to read several quotes from him and explain a, a lot of his work and, and why I think he, his life is worth remembering at this moment. Mary, why don't we touch us off with some COVID-19 updates? We think it's important to continue to share the most up-to-date and accurate information about COVID-19. Of course, we don't claim to have all of that down. You want to look for uh, sources of authority for that. That does not include the President of the United States, who uh, has proven to be 
the biggest distributor of misinformation and well indeed i would argue disinformation about the pandemic and unfortunately we have a harder time of trusting even our own government sources now like the cdc which um again and again the trump administration has shown they're trying to put their thumb on the scale to make the pandemic seem like that not that big of an issue mary why don't you give us some highlights on where we're at with covid19 locally and nationally Certainly. So we're going to start on a larger scale just to give a kind of a worldwide picture of uh, how the cases are looking. We haven't looked at COVID-19 numbers in a few weeks, so this is just a little bit of context. So total cases worldwide right now. So this is, again, from the beginning of the pandemic, this is all positive COVID-19 cases since, I guess, January. Um, are over 37 million cases. Um, the numbers that I have are as of 10 p.m. Friday night, which usually reflects the information from the day before. So these this information is as of October 8th to 9th. Uh, so new cases October 9th as of 10 p.m. were 358,447 worldwide. Uh, worldwide, over a million people have died and over 27 million people have recovered from COVID-19. So, you know, the majority of people who get COVID-19 are still recovering. However, not a friendly disease to be getting. So, Mary, there's 27 million people who've recovered from COVID and 1 million who've died. That's right. Yeah. And, of course, you know, so you would think that that is a 1 out of 27 death ratio. But um, the, the numbers aren't exact because that's also, you know, not every case is reported. Correct. And also there are still ongoing cases right now of people who have the virus and who've either yet to recover um, or yet to pass away from it. So uh, we do know, though, Mary, what you said, the, the vast, vast majority of people who get COVID-19 do recover. However, uh, the disease is far deadlier than uh, the flu, which even itself is very deadly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's still, it's, it's, it's not as casual of a disease as, say, the president would like to argue with us. And the other thing is that of those people who've recovered, we don't know what issues they're being left with. Mm. You know, this is a respiratory bit disease. However, there are many more symptoms than just respiratory issues that come out of it. For example, blood clots are a huge thing. And that's not something that you necessarily know how to keep track of afterwards all the time. So even people who are asymptomatic have the potential for getting blood clots, which can cause issues like aneurysms at the most, you know, the most deadly version later on. So even people who've recovered, there's not... You know, that's not to say those people have fully recovered. Right. They are still alive, and that is certainly a good thing, uh, but we we don't know what problems they're going to be facing later on due to this disease. Right. And a lot of folks who've recovered from COVID, too, also suffer from mental health issues, uh, whether it's the sort of the stress of going through... Uh, our lives dealing with, uh, you know, a very deadly virus, but also just, you know, something about the virus seems to also increase one's uh, susceptibility to anxiety or depression. Maybe it's just the stress overall, but, you know, uh, we, we should never discount mental effects either, not just the physiological ones. That's right, Jason. And I'm going to just keep moving with the numbers here. So I'm going to hone in now on the United States. The total cases within the United States are almost 8 million. Again, this is numbers 
from back to January of reported COVID-19 cases. Uh, the new cases as of October 9th are over 60,000. Uh, in the United States, over 218,000 people have died and about 5 million have recovered from the disease. Now, I just want to mention, I know I've mentioned this number before, but as of about July, the CDC was anticipating that about 200,000 people in the United States would die from COVID-19 by December of this year. We're now in mid-October, and 20,000 more than that number have already died, almost 220,000 people, and it's still growing. It's a pretty insane rise. The number of COVID-19 cases has barely taken a downturn in the United States. It has continued to rise. There are very few states that are falling in numbers. So we really have to continue to be careful of where we're going, what we're doing, and always to keep our masks on. Part of the reason that I mentioned the worldwide numbers was just to put the United States numbers in context. I just want to remind listeners that the United States has just over 4% of the total world population, yet our terrible federal response has led to the United States having over 21% of worldwide COVID-19 cases and 20% of worldwide COVID-19 deaths. And again, this is still growing. I like how when Mike Pence, who was the leader of the White House's coronavirus task force, you know, Mike Pence is, of course, the vice president. When he was asked during the vice presidential debate this past week about that statistic, Mary, the moderator said, yeah, U.S. has around 4% of the world population, yet we have around 20% of the world's uh, total cases and deaths. What's going on with that, Mike Pence? And he's just like... Uh, the American people have responded to this virus with, you know, the determination, the grit and the integrity that this nation has always shown when it comes to disaster. You know, just like complete nonsense. It's like yeah, he didn't even answer. the question. Yeah, right. So the answer is he didn't answer the question. And yeah, this is the most damning statistic uh, that we all should be <laughs> just, um, you know, lambasting the, this administration about. It's a natural disaster. This will be in the history textbooks of a natural disaster. I'd like to point out real quick that, Jason, you mentioned earlier that you would argue that Trump has been the largest source of disinformation concerning the coronavirus. Oh, yes. no, that's a fact, actually. That's actually been published in yeah. a yeah, Cornell yeah, yeah. University study in the past week or so. Right. I think it's 28% or something of it's all like, it's of even the higher. misinformation. Yeah. It's like 30 has... something. Yeah, it's even oh, higher. Really? It's like okay. 37%. 38%. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Even better. Yeah. Um, yeah, so well, that that isn't yeah. us just being... Uh, silly or or observ observing about the president it is actually part of a study yeah yeah so. you know the the head of the executive branch of this country and the leader of the free world is the biggest spread of disinformation about the virus that has had the worst effects on the u.s on the worst effects of the american people as compared to any other wealthy industrialized country that's no accident you know why it's because this administration is completely inept and doesn't deserve to have power and they should be voted out in november yeah how are we doing so, locally, though, Mary? Yeah, so locally, I do have a couple points to touch on. Uh, now, Monroe County had been handling the virus quite well, and I think has been throughout the entire duration yeah. of of its spread here since March. However, it is important to know that Monroe County announced 55 new cases on October 8th, and that is the 
highest single-day caseload since July 10th, where there were also 55 new cases. So the numbers are starting to grow locally as well, and we really do need to be aware of that. I also wanted to mention that in other local COVID-19 news, uh, there's been a cluster of 19 confirmed positive cases, as well as two unrelated cases of COVID-19 at Nazareth College, uh, which is one of the campuses locally that has reopened for the fall semester. Uh, this cluster of cases had, has led to some frustration with the college's response in regards to students living on campus. Uh, Nazareth had published a plan initially, you know, with what was going to happen if students needed to quarantine. And that plan stated that students who were able to safely return home should self-quarantine there, and that residential life would assist with quarantine at a hotel off campus or isolation in the guest house on campus for students who were unable to quarantine or isolate at home. However, uh, they strayed a little bit from this plan recently and displaced resident students of the French House, which is a special interest dorm and a cultural center for the Rochester Francophone community. These students were apparently asked to vacate their rooms at very short notice, think day of, to make space for students who needed to quarantine. Uh, the students are apparently be put, being put up in a hotel. However, they did have to vacate their own rooms within a few hours. College President Beth Paul released a statement on October 9th, which did not include this change of plan. So just to wrap up, please, you know, I, I know that I can't make a call out on air, but it is still a good idea to keep wearing a mask, to keep avoiding crowded restaurants and bars and just crowds in general. Still a good idea to keep your high touch, you know, if, if you have like people that you are spending time with, especially maskless, to keep that to a minimum, because COVID-19 is still here, we still don't have a vaccine, and the numbers are starting to grow again. Right, and most importantly, remember that COVID-19 primarily spreads through respiratory droplets in the air. And therefore, what, regardless of what the CDC says and takes back, you know, these splash shields and all that stuff, it's in the air. So, you know, keeping masks on and keeping far apart, and most importantly, keeping in well-ventilated spaces is the best thing we can do. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. It's Saturday, October 19th. Give us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889 to share with us how you are doing. We are going to transition now to talk about our feature for today's show. This is the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances Report just released by the Federal Reserve. So the Survey of Consumer Finances is a triennial survey. That means it comes out once every three years, and it provides the most comprehensive look at the assets, liabilities, income, and demographic characteristics of U.S. families. It's a very robust look at various economic indicators for our society. The survey started in 1989, and it comes out again once every three years. So the most recent survey was in 2016. This survey, the 20, 2019 one that was just released, again, comes at the tail end of the so-called longest economic expansion in America on modern record. 
So again, note also that the survey does not include the economic devastation wrought by the COVID-19 pandemic. So all the things we'll be talking about what uh, is data at the end of the so-called longest American economic expansion before COVID-19. So we can take then uh, all of the data and probably uh, see the inequalities and extend them even further because there's been extensive reporting how the most, you know, the wealthiest have fared better throughout the pandemic than the poorest. So, uh, you know, what does the survey look at? Again, extensive figures on wealth, income, debt, stock ownership, car ownership, home ownership, and much more. You can look at all of those things and view the mean, the median, the totals, or interestingly, percent by distribution. What that means is you can take any indicator, let's say income, and analyze it based on things such as education level, family structure, race or ethnicity, or even, as we'll get into right now, percentile of income and percentile of wealth. On this program, we've covered extensively before economic indicators based on percentiles. And just as a brief overview of what a percentile is, is imagine that you are back in school. Oh, the giddy days of lining up outside for gym class to be picked for a dodgeball team. I was never picked. Jason, is that a a sore memory for you? I'm really bringing this up for my own therapy. Yeah. Um, I was, however, in the anecdote I'll use, always the tallest person. I'm a rather vertical person. And so um, (laughs) imagine being back in school and, uh, you know, you line up outside of your school building in order of height from lowest to highest. Uh, And let's say there's 10 people in your class. So 10 people in your class lined up against the wall from shortest person to tallest person. If you wanted to divide people up into quintiles, meaning five equal groups, and if you have 10 people, then you would have five groups of two people, right? 10 divided by two is five. I think I got that right. Thanks for that math lesson. (laughs) And so your shortest people, the shortest two people would be your bottom quintile. Your tallest two people would be your top two quintile, your top quintile, so on and so forth. You can do the exact same thing with income and wealth. Imagine if we lined up every single American against your gym class wall. And now instead of ordering us based on height, we ordered ourselves based on our income or based on our wealth. And then we've divided us all into five equal groups. Therefore, we get quintiles based on the American uh, population, based on income and wealth. That's how the data works. And so we'll be looking at a lot of that uh, going forward. And going forward, what were the findings from this 2019 survey of consumer finances? Well, quote, except for a small shift in concentration from the top 1% to the remainder of the top 10%, Wealth concentration in 2019 was similar to the level seen in 2016 and was near the historic high over the 1989 to 2019 period. Wealth became steadily more concentrated at the top, largely at the expense of the families and the upper middle segment of the distribution. I guess that does support the uh, the claim that is often stated of the middle class being killed. It just doesn't say, you know, specifically how. Yeah, we've seen a, 
Yeah, we've seen a hollowing out of the middle class in America. Hollowing out meaning the middle class gets smaller and the bottom classes and the upper classes get larger. So it's true. Uh, we have seen more wealthy people in the U.S. over the past several decades. We've also seen more poor people in the U.S. at a much larger number and percentage. And so, uh, you know, let's look specifically at some of the examples here. Uh, the wealth distribution in the United States. And wealth means your assets minus your debts. All the stuff you own minus all the stuff that you owe. According to the Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances, the top 1% controlled 33% of all of the wealth in the United States. The top 1% controlled 33% of all of the wealth in the United States in 2019. How about the top 10% of the wealthiest individuals. Again, picture yourself in school lined up against your, your, you know, gymnasium wall, everyone based on wealth. The top 10% of wealthiest folks in the U.S. control 71% of all of the wealth in the United States. How about the bottom 50%? What about, what about half of America? How about the poorest half of America? all 165 million people. Well, those folks control just 2% of all of the wealth in the United States. So the top 10% of wealthiest individuals control 71% of the wealth. The bottom 50% of individuals in America control 2% of the wealth. To phrase it differently, let's add in some more folks. The bottom 90% of America controls just 29% of all of the wealth. So we see that our society is drastically unequal based upon economics. We live in a class-based society as much as we'd like to think of equal egalitarian opportunity in the United States. The vast, vast majority of Americans do not own a whole lot of stuff. Can we also, just to go on a, a bit of a tangent, but can we think about, uh, for a moment, all of the people who are, for example, in Congress uh, or otherwise in administration, where would those people most likely fall in this distribution, Jason? They're, they're all in the top 10%. Yeah, uh, unequivocally. All Every politician you see in Washington, um, every single person on the media. Every, Except maybe AOC. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Sorry, I shouldn't say every. I don't, I don't know as much about the House representatives. That's different. If you're a senator, um, you're in the top 10%. Uh, well, I mean, you know, it depends on how much debt you have. You could have a ton of debt, at least your assets and your income. Um, you know, senators don't get paid all that much, but oftentimes they are business people or they have tons of assets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even, even Bernie Sanders is a millionaire, you know. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying that just because you have a lot of money, you're automatically a bad person. That's not our point. The point is that our system is broken and we should have better social safety nets to distribute, uh, housing, income, and healthcare to, to all Americans, not just those who are lucky enough to have a lot of money. So yeah, Mary, if, if you're, if you're a senator, you're in the top 10%. If you are a talking head on Fox News, if you're Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity, you're in the top 10%. As much as they like to lambast the global elite and say, you know, uh, talk about sort of, you know, wealth in a, a disinformation populist way. Uh, they're a member of that elite. Yeah. And I think that I just wanted to bring that up to 
as a reminder of, you know, these are the people who are making decisions about the future of our country, about how government money is being spent. These are people who can afford fabulous health care on their own, which they don't need because they have government sponsored health care anyway, if they're a senator. Um, but these are the people who are in control of making decisions, who we have voted in to make decisions for the future of our country. And they control the majority of the wealth in our country. So I think it's really important to keep that in mind as we're voting and as we're seeing what's going on, you know, in our nation and where it's going. Yes. All of the people who control the power of the United States also tend to control a lot of the money. All of the key decision makers, all of the key media makers, they all are the wealthiest individuals. And therefore you're totally right, Mary, you know, we have to scrutinize the decisions they make based upon the social class to which they belong. And this is why I think we've seen both Democrats and Republicans, but largely Republicans, make policies decade after decade after decade that entrenches entrenches their wealth at the expense of all other social classes. Certainly. And Sanders being an exception to that rule. So yes. And a few other We know that there too. are some who, yeah. who like really do have the interests of the many at heart and... Probably a lot of them want to and just don't understand what it's like to be one of them. Yeah, because, you know, we do live in a society where you are able to get wealthy off of not just owning capital. To my knowledge, Bernie Sanders isn't a business owner. And therefore, you know, someone like Bernie Sanders gets fabulously wealthy by um, spending a lifetime of public service. And so, you know, he writes books and sells them and makes a lot of money off of writing books. And so I know the right has strongly criticized Bernie Sanders to say, how can you be a socialist when you're a millionaire? It's like, that's not, that's not the point. <laughs> you know, that's not the point that, uh, uh, when it comes to socialism, like you can still be wealthy and argue for a more equal society. Indeed, folks like Warren Buffett and others, there's a, I forgot the name of the, the one percenters. There's a group of one percenters who argue that they should be taxed much, much higher. There's plenty of people who do that. You know, there's tons of one percenters out there who are saying, please government tax me. Why are you not taxing me? It makes no sense not to tax me. I have more money than I can possibly spend in a lifetime. Why is my money not going to the benefit of, of society at large? You know, so just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you're necessarily a good or bad person, of course. Nor does it necessarily mean you have to belong to one uh, political economic ideology or another. It just all depends on who you are as an individual and what you want to do with that money. Certainly. And um, could you talk about how this has changed over the, the past, you know, like 10, 15 years or so, Jason? Yeah, well... You know, we just gave the statistics on the 2019 numbers. So the top 1% controls 33% of all of the wealth. The bottom 50% controls 2% of all of the wealth. Uh, since 1989, again, at the start of the Federal Reserve's survey of consumer finances, the figures back then were a little different. The top 1% controlled, uh, quote, just 25% of all of the wealth. So they controlled um, slightly less of the overall wealth than they do now, 25% in 1989 as compared to 33% now. And the bottom 50% controlled around 4% of the nation's wealth then as opposed to 2% of the wealth now. Where we see the biggest changes is kind of towards the middle. The top 10% in 1989 controlled 62% of the nation's wealth. Now they control 71% of the nation's wealth. So in three short decades, they controlled 10% more of the nation's wealth. And uh, in the top 50 to 90% of people in the U.S. 
they went from controlling 35% of the nation's wealth down to 27% of the nation's wealth. So the only people who have controlled more wealth over the past 30 years are those in the top 10%. Everyone else, the bottom 90% of Americans, have controlled a smaller share of the nation's overall wealth. As a result, we have seen more wealth. We're not talking about income yet, but it's the same scenario over large. Uh, the top 10%, you know, of all of the wealth in the nation, it has been more and more concentrated in the hands of the wealthiest. And as a result, they've also gained more political power. So, Mary, uh, over time, it has changed. These numbers don't go back beyond 1989. Again, we're just mm -hmm. looking at the Federal Reserve's survey of consumer finances. We on the show have covered other reports. For example, it was ago last week or two weeks ago, we covered a RAND Corporation report that goes back farther. All of these, uh, you know, the U.S. has seen this concentration of economic inequality since at least the 1970s. And so the numbers can go back, indeed, until even then. And as a reminder, you are tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking about the 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances that came out just recently by the Federal Reserve. This is a comprehensive look at the assets, liabilities, income, and demographic characteristics of the United States. You can give us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. Let us know what you think about the numbers that we're going through. How do you feel? How are you doing financially? We just came out of the so-called lar <laughs> largest 10-year economic expansion in modern American history. Are you feeling well off? Or, uh, you know, ha have you, have you struggled for a long time? Indeed, even before COVID-19, have you struggled? Because again, all of these numbers that we're going through that says the top 10% of Americans control 70% of the nation's wealth and the bottom 50% of Americans control just 2% of the nation's wealth. They all are before the COVID-19 pandemic. Now we can imagine, of course, the numbers are even worse because there's been plenty of reports that so show how the nation's wealthiest uh, continue to grow wealthier and the nation's poorest continue to grow poorer throughout COVID-19. Because again, money isn't just money. It also translates into political and material power. So Jason, I was wondering a little bit, and I know we've touched on this on the show before, uh, but you mentioned that we're not talking about income here. We're talking about wealth. And when we're talking about these numbers, we're talking about amounts of wealth that are owned by certain groups of people. Um, could you go a little bit into what wealth means in these within these numbers and uh, versus what income means if you're going to be talking about income? Yeah, it, often <laughs> it's weird to talk about this. And the fact that it's weird to talk about shows how unequal our society is. For the vast majority of people, talking about wealth feels weird. Like, why are we talking about wealth? I don't have any wealth. <laughs> and, and that's precisely the issue. For most people, we only talk about income. You know, what's the question? How much money do you make a year? Boom, that's it, writ large, period. Because for people, for the vast majority of people, their income is their so-called only source of wealth. Mm -hmm. Meaning they sell their time in the form of labor on the labor market in our capitalist society. 
that is someone's means of getting money to meet their material needs, the form of income sold through labor. Uh, for most wealthy people, when we talk about wealth, it is a sum of all assets that can be liquidated in a market. Therefore, it's anything that you can sell right now or in the near future to turn into liquid cash to, to meet your material needs with. So Jeff Bezos loses his income tomorrow. The Amazon and all those other companies say, we're no longer paying you salary. Jeff Bezos is fine not making a salary, so he can work 40 hours a week at $0 an hour mm -hmm. because he can then sell his assets in the form of income. So, you know, he could sell stocks, he could sell bonds, he could sell... Um, his company. His company. Yeah, exactly. So assets, or sorry, wealth is any asset that you own. I don't know how anyone would buy it, though. I don't think anyone else is <laughs> rich has the money. to buy yeah. it. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, maybe Jeff Bezos actually secretly <laughs> has nothing. If they cut off his income tomorrow, he's done. <laughs> we just figured it out, Mary. No. <laughs> That's really funny. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure he has other assets, though, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, you know, we don't mean to poo-poo on, on Jeff Bezos. He's just a great example. Well, I mean, but, I, I do. But, yeah. you know. but, but Mary, you, you brought up really usually before how, you know, the, the wealthiest individuals, all, all senators, all media heads, you know, all people who control positions of power, the main business owners in the country, yeah, they're all the top one in 10%, the owners of capital. Um, so, you know, uh, for most Americans, our only source of, of wealth, so-called, is income earned through labor on the labor market. Uh, otherwise, we have like cars and homes, but they're nothing. Cars and homes are a drop in the bucket uh, when we're talking about actual wealth distribution in the United States. Cars and homes are negligible when it comes to actually meeting one's material needs uh, for the vast, vast majority of Americans. For instance, to look more at some of these wealth statistics revealed in the survey of consumer finances, uh, about 30, or excuse me, about three fourths of the top 1% own private businesses compared to just, uh, 5% of folks in the bottom 50% of the income distribution. So 75% of the top 1% own businesses, just 5% of the bottom 50% own businesses and therefore owning a business in this capitalist system is proven uh, statistically speaking to generate vast amounts of wealth for owners of capital so if you're lucky enough to own a private business that means you are more likely to have more and more wealth it's not just how owning stuff you know it's not just the hard work of making your own business it's also wealth transfers intergenerationally one half of all of the total intergenerational transfers of money go to um, uh, go to the wealthiest individuals. For instance, the top one percent in America, they are expected to inherit close to one million dollars. I'm sorry, is that? each or how does that yeah what, so if, you if you're born into a family of the top one percent mm -hmm. you're expected to inherit a million dollars at least that that's just that's just uh on average okay yep uh the bottom 50 percent what can what can uh you know in theory most americans 50 percent isn't most but uh you know what can the bottom 50 percent of americans expect to inherit it's uh, less than thirty thousand dollars and that's an average of the entire bottom 50%, right? Yeah, I apologize. I don't remember if this is median or mean. So okay. uh, I'll go with average, but um, I don't remember if it's median or mean. Again, you can view all these statistics online. We'll plug that at the end of this uh, this feature. But 
uh, yeah, it's <laughs> so you know we're talking about a million dollars versus thirty thousand um, dollars, just just in terms of inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. Just just being born into um, one's life. So we don't all start equally, of course. And, and lastly, in terms of wealth, there's a million other statistics we could go into. But in terms of stock ownership, we we you know the, the media and politicians, Donald Trump in particular, loves to talk about how the stock market is doing. The stock market means nothing for. Um, almost most of Americans, only 53% of families own stocks in the U.S. Just over half of Americans own stock then. And that's just any stock. So someone could have like $2 yep. in the stock yep. market and that would still count towards that, correct? To my knowledge, yep. But it's not just, hey, if you own stocks, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of stock wealth is concentrated in the hands of the top 10%. The median stock ownership. So of all, think of your line in gym class again. Median is the person right in the middle. The, the median stock ownership in the United States is $40,000. So half of stock owners have less than $40,000 in ownership. Mary, this could be, you know, this could be penny stocks, two shares of a penny stock. Sure. Um, whereas the mean stock ownership the average stock ownership is $370,000. So when the mean is so much larger than the median it means there's an upper tail skew in the numbers it means the wealthy control that much more. Mm-hmm. You know, you could have a lower tail skew where the the the, the lower classes own mo- most um or you could have an upper tail skew all of our economic figures in the US are upper tail skewed. So um the mean is so much more. So, you know, when we really talk about stocks, when, when you hear WXXI and all these other news programs a talk, you know, at the top of the hour broadcast the stock wealth, there's no accident of that. It's because the wealthy elite have, uh, you know, have stock stocks reported on as often as the weather. Literally, you know, if you listen to a news report, uh, you hear, oh, today's sunny, 55, da, 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 and also the Dow Jones is up seven points. You know, it, it only matters to the, to the wealthiest of Americans. Yeah, I've never really known what that means <laughs> when listening. It's just like it is meaningless if you don't right. have stocks. Right. And, you know, um, I, uh, Mary, Matt, and I, we're, we're all a member of the, the bottom 50% here when it comes to wealth. Uh, you know, most most Americans. Uh, you know, if anything, we might fall into the 50 to 90%. We don't have to go into that. But, you know, we, are, we represent on this show the bottom 29% of wealth holders in the United States, <laughs> you know, the bottom 90% of Americans. So, you know, um, I, it's just um, the, we are talking on behalf of the vast majority of Americans, you know, because most Americans uh, occupy this, this place. So I don't want to belittle. Um, there's so many more points to get into on this. Uh, again, this is evidence of design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. The last point I want to get to um, is this on race and ethnicity. This crushes me every time I see this. It's just, it's just beyond me. Um, the 2019 Federal Reserve's Survey of Consumer Finances data shows that the typical white family has eight times the wealth of the typical black family and five times the wealth of the typical Hispanic family. So the median, uh, the median wealth for black families is just 15% of that of white families. For instance, the average, um, sorry, the median wealth for white folks under 35 is $25,000. The median wealth for black folks under 35 is just $6,000. 
the median wealth for white families over 55 is $320,000. The median wealth for black families over 55 is $53,000. It's just astronomically far apart. That really, really hits home the point you mentioned earlier about intergenerational wealth and how, like, having a family that's wealthy or being born into a family that's been able to gain wealth over multiple generations really, really makes a difference in where you are now, no matter what your parents have done or your grandparents have done. Like, wealth is something that is built over generations. Yep, absolutely. And this this is why there's talk of reparations and systemic racism, because... uh, uh, because that's perhaps a good policy idea and because racism actually does exist systemically. <laughs> so um, we see it and manifested. In no small way. In no small way, yeah. And it, it's it's writ large manifested in our economic system and, of course, political system. So to end with a uh, to end with a quote from the Survey of Consumer Finances, remember, again, we just left the decade-longest American expansion on record. Uh, the quote is, despite growth over the last two surveys, meaning um, six years from the Uh, well, actually nine years from the survey of consumer finances, excuse me. So despite growth over the last several surveys, the typical white family and the typical black family have yet to recover to their pre-Great Recession levels of wealth. Folks, this was the thesis to starting this radio show, Evidence of Design, was that Donald Trump was elected in 2016 because our political parties, including Barack Obama and the Democratic Party, and especially George W. Bush and the Republican Party, failed to respond adequately to the Great Recession. The Great Recession eviscerated millions of jobs and wealth for Americans that did not deserve to be punished by the economic system that collapsed because of the greed of Wall Street. And therefore, Donald Trump was able to be elected because there's a vast, uh, there's uh, millions of ignorant Americans out there who have been lied to by the Republican Party for decades to think that Republicans are better in economics than Democrats. And this is the reason why Donald Trump is president. And this is the, and, and the reason is because our political parties have failed to respond as they should to our economic problems. We and have, I, yeah, just the truth about being good at economics. I think that they are very good at economics for the people they want to be good at economics for. Yeah, well, those in power, certainly. Yeah, the yes. Republicans are masters of economics. We we are living in class warfare all the time, except the class warfare is only being fought by one side. The wealthy are masters at fighting the class warfare, and they know they're fighting class warfare. The wealthy know that America is not equal. The wealthy know there's not equality of opportunity. The wealthy know that classism exists. The wealthy know that Marxism is a real thing. They just are the only ones fighting that war. And they hoodwink the poor into thinking that it either doesn't exist or they don't have power to affect change. And therefore, the class warfare is only being fought by one side. And they're winning because of it. And, and this is the reason why Donald Trump is president in our theory. And this is why we have the show Evidence of Design to elucidate the, the, uh, the causes and effects of economic inequality. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Saturday, October 10th, give us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, 585-219-8889.
888-900-3589. Mary kicked off the show by giving us an update of COVID-19 facts and figures nationally and locally. Then we just went through our feature of the Federal Reserve's recently released 2019 Survey of Consumer Finances. If you Google Fed SCF or Survey of Consumer Finances, it will pop up for you. I highly recommend playing around with their uh, charts, tables, figures. It's really uh, intuitive, and it's really fascinating to see all the different things you can play around with and see. And uh, you'll you'll learn a lot, I think. Let's end the show now with a tribute to David Graeber. It just came to my attention this week that David Graeber passed away around a month ago. He was a author, professor activist and anarchist. I read a lot of Graeber's work uh, several years ago and followed him uh, in the news and found a lot of his work to be inspiring. And uh, I think he passed away around the age of 59 of uh, so-called natural causes. He, he is the author of several works, uh, most recently um, Bullcrap Jobs, A Theory, and uh, Bullcrap is, is the, the real title of that is more colorful version of bullcrap. So um, he is the author of that most recent work. He's also the author of the Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy. He's the author of Debt, The First 5,000 Years. That's probably his most famous work. Um, and, and I want to just end the hour by reading a few quotes of his. So from his 2000 book, are you an anarchist? The answer may surprise you. David Graeber wrote, Every time you treat another human being with consideration and respect, you are being an anarchist. Every time you work out your differences with others by coming to a reasonable compromise, listening to what everyone has to say, rather than letting one person decide for everyone else, you are being an anarchist. Every time you have the opportunity to force someone to do something, but decide to appeal to their sense of reason or justice instead, you are being an anarchist. The same goes for every time you share something with a friend, or decide who is going to do the dishes, or do anything at all with an eye to fairness. He later goes on to write, Anarchists are simply people who believe human beings are capable of behaving in a reasonable fashion without having been forced to. Another quote that strikes out that sticks out to me from David Graeber, uh, this is from his The Utopia of Rules on Technology, Stupidity, and the Secret Joys of Bureaucracy, and he writes, In contemporary industrialized democracies, the legitimate administration of violence is turned over to what is euphemistically referred to as criminal law enforcement, particularly to police officers. I say euphemistically because generations of police sociologists have pointed out that only a very small proportion of what police actually, excuse me, only a very small proportion of what police actually do has anything to do with enforcing criminal law or with criminal matters of any kind. Most of it has to do with regulations or to put it slightly more technically with the scientific application of physical force or the threat of physical force to aid in the resolution of administrative problems. In other words, when they spend most of their time enforcing all those endless rules and regulations about who can buy or smoke or sell or build or eat or drink, police then are bureaucrats with weapons.
Another quote from David Graeber is, Normally when you challenge the conventional wisdom that the current economic and political system is the only possible one, the first reaction you are likely to get is a demand for a detailed architectural blueprint of how an alternative system would work, down to the nature of its financial instruments, energy supplies, and policies of sewer maintenance. Next, you are likely to be asked for a detailed program of how the system will be brought into existence. Historically, this is ridiculous. When has social change ever happened according to someone's blueprint? It's not as if the small circle of visionaries in Renaissance Florence conceived of something they called capitalism, figured out the details of how the stock exchange and factories would someday work, and then put in place a program to bring their visions into reality. In fact, the idea is so absurd, we might well ask ourselves how it ever occurred to us to imagine this is how change happens to begin with. And the last quote I want to end with by David Graeber, this is from his book, Debt, the First 5,000 Years. And it goes, I would like then to end by putting in a good word for the non-industrious poor. At least they aren't hurting anyone. Insofar as the time they are taking time off from work is being spent with friends and family, enjoying and caring for those they love, they're probably improving the world more than we acknowledge. Indeed, rest in peace, David Graeber. You can find out more of his work online by Googling his name. And with that, we'll end our show today. This was Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Thank you for tuning in and supporting your local grassroots radio station. WXIR plays an integral part to the local media scene, contributing to different voices and sounds that can reconceive what radio should and can sound like. New to our show is you can find our show wherever you find your podcast, whether that's on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, etc. We are now no longer just on YouTube. We have catapulted my good friends, listeners, and community into the year 2018 by being on wherever you can find your podcasts. So check us out wherever you would like. We're, all of our past episodes are there. Well, they're all on YouTube right now, and only the most recent ones are on anywhere else you can find your podcast. Stay tuned for the Esquire Hour. They're up next and always put on a great show. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joined by my good friends and co-hosts, Matt Treadwell. Bye. And Mary Lawrence. I'm just still wearing a mask. Matt, who's the intro and outro music by? Me. With your band, Sestrugi. Until next time, be well, be safe, stay on the right side of history, wear a mask, and bye-bye.